welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So during what the church calls ordinary time, um, we've been walking through the book of Acts. I've seen kind of this movement in Acts, the, the movement that we spoke about last week, the, the, the commission of Christ to bring the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've kind of seen that transition and move happen. The multitudes during Pentecost in Israel, in Jerusalem, coming to faith and and the gospel going throughout Judea. We saw the conversion of the despised and and hated Samaritans and Christ bringing them in. And then, then we saw last week the one that was so far off, so completely other, that he was understood to be from the ends of the earth in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And in some ways, I think now we see something maybe even more radical than even the conversion of the holy other, like the Ethiopian eunuch, or the despised you know, apostate heretics like the Samaritans. Um, see the conversion of a very religiously devout Pharisee. This story that we read is, you know, often titled and talked about as, 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 as Saul becoming Paul, or the conversion of Paul. And it's a really important event. I'm actually going to be looking at it um, over the next two Sundays because it is so important. This event that happened changed the world. Um, Apart from what God did in and through St. Paul, beginning with this event, most likely none of us would be here today because most of us are Gentiles. It's an extremely huge and important event. I used some air quotes because there's a little bit of qualifying here, and we'll see a little bit more as I get into it. Um, First, just as as an aside, I often talk about Saul becoming Paul. That's not actually kind of what happened. Actually, you'll see after this, he stays Saul for a little bit and then starts being referred to as Paul. He starts becoming Paul whenever he is amongst the Gentiles because Paul is just the Romanization of the Hebrew Saul. Uh, it's, it, it's not the same thing as Simon becoming Peter or Abram becoming Abraham. Um, it's more like Jose becoming Joe. Um, and, and so just as a little side note, and I, and I say that to qualify that I will probably mix them up and use them interchangeably. And so I just want to justify myself in doing so. Um, secondly, this is significant. It's quite miraculous. And we see that there is a transformation in Paul. But actually, Paul would never see this as a conversion. 
at least in the sense we often use it. Paul never saw himself as changing religions. He was a Jew, he remained a Jew, and he saw his Christian faith as fulfillment of his Judaism. So much so that he saw the gospel going to the Gentiles as grafting them in to Israel. He didn't move like we often hear of of testimonies from kind of indifference to all of a sudden religious fervor. He, He had plenty of religious zeal. He did not lack in that regard. Or the common testimony of conversion of of deep immorality to morality, you know. I went from a drug dealer to a Sunday school teacher. Like, we don't see that in Paul. Paul actually claims multiple times that according to the law, perfect, and he doesn't even qualify that. It's hard for us to process, but he was a deeply moral and devout man. And in many ways, as we'll see, most of his religious pursuits remained essentially the same. A studier of God's word. Preacher of God's word. Concerned about the faithfulness and purity of God's people. And that didn't really change. And yet something transformed in Paul. Something deep and significant transformed in Paul. So much so that we see Paul referring back to this event numerous times throughout the New Testament. In speeches he gives in Acts and in his introduction in Galate to the church in Galatia, but also alluding to this event even more times throughout the scriptures. And so I want to look at this important and historic event over the next two weeks. First, this week, looking at the internal transformation of Paul. What did convert? And what that means for us. And then next week, look at more of the external and corporate nature of what happened to Paul. And so looking at this miraculous change in Paul. And I, and I say miraculous, um, it, it is because of, uh, of these series of, of bold, like, blatant events. You know, bright light, knocked off the horse, you know, risen Lord right before you, voice of God being heard, um, sight regained. There's a lot of miraculous and bold events, but what I want to focus on is actually, I, I, I think, a miracle that we miss It's the miracle of the subtlety of Paul's transformation. So, before being an Anglican priest, um, I I was a a Southern Baptist minister for many years and greatly benefit from that in my formation. And there is a lot that that we need to learn from the Baptists. But one of the things I, I remember is, is that in that context, that, that down at the church that I was at, is a mega church down, down in Northern Virginia, and, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on testimony, but testimony through a certain framework. And a lot of celebration on those good testimonies. You know what I mean? If you had a good testimony, you, you're the one that got to get up on stage. And you know what I mean by the good testimony. 
Like you were exceptionally bad. And you did really, really bad things. And what I kind of found, I even found it in myself, tended to kind of exaggerate, you know. I mean, sometimes it was a radical change. And it's like sometimes, like, in college, you smoked weed once and you talk about how you were a drug addict. Like, you know, and, but, but that was the emphasis. And then I remember that there was actually some anxiety among some that I was ministering to. I was working with young adults. Because they didn't have a good testimony. They grew up in the church. Really never rebelled or did anything bad. I remember actually one kid that he went off and went off the deep end. He started selling drugs and getting into things. I remember seeing him and sitting down and talking to him. And he said to me, he's like, I didn't have a testimony. I felt like I needed to get out, experience the world before then really committing to Christ. See, what's interesting is, yeah, some of those are, are profound. Some of those are just moral change. There's a lot of other religions that bad people become moral people through. But actually, what I think is even more radical are the testimonies that we never hear because they don't seem that radical. It's when a good religious person changes that we may not even notice it. Because oftentimes, it's not those who are completely far off, but it's those who appear so near that are the hardest for the gospel to penetrate. It wasn't the, the prostitutes and tax collectors that, 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 that Jesus' ministry was hard to hit. It was the Pharisees and the scribes. It was the very religious I think partially because the change that is needed is so subtle and yet incredibly significant. And so looking at our example of Paul and the subtle but incredibly significant changes in Paul, we first have to understand it through the not-so-subtle event. I mean, we have Paul that is trying to round up the Christians who, um, just so you know, if Christ was not who he said he was, they were heretics, and what Paul was doing was right. If Christ was not the Son of God, these people running around and calling upon others to worship this false prophet is a horrible, dangerous thing. And so Paul was actually trying to be faithful from where he understood things. And yet in the midst of that, he's taking his entourage with him, having a letter from the high priest. I mean, essentially, he has a handwritten letter from the Pope giving him the orders to stand and lead the charge to defend the orthodox faith of the people of Israel. And as he's going along, we read that a huge, a bright light knocks him off his horse. Off his horse. 
And then he's blinded. Kind of blinded. He's blinded when he opens his eyes, but yet whenever he's first blinded, he can see the resurrected Lord. And he hears a voice of God. And I think he would have understood it to be the voice of God because actually what happened to him with the bright light and being knocked over and everything else, he would have known because he was a scholar of scriptures, had occurred free, uh, often in the times past to prophets when they were receiving a call. Hearing something that nobody really ever wants to hear from God. Why are you persecuting me? And then he's left blind to be walked the rest of the way to Damascus. If you think about it, I mean, he was literally knocked down, but in reality, this was more than just knocking him on the ground. This was... This was Paul getting knocked down a notch. I mean, being humbled in extreme ways. I mean, one minute, you are leading the charge. Everybody looking at you. Not that long before, that little heretic boy, Stephen, remember? Whenever he was stoned, Paul was standing there and people were laying close him. He's holding up. And then the next thing you know, he's dirty, bloody, and can't see. And is reaching around and has no idea where he is or exactly what had happened to him. And you have to remember with Paul, this was the guy who had the best biblical education. He says he was, he was a student of Gamaliel. We have extra biblical sources that talk about Gamaliel. He was so influential as a thinker. He says that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees the most rigorous and devout people. He was moving up the religious ladder. He got commissioned by the Pope. I mean, not the Pope. Chief priest. If anything, with all of his education, his study, his ministry, his work as a Pharisee, and the Pharisees' primary concern were to draw the people back to the Word of God so that they would be faithful to the Word of God and remain separate from the people of the Roman people and in their purity that then God would deliver them and be faithful to his promises. He was definitely, if anybody, one who knew that he saw things clearly. And it was his duty to enlighten the rest. Yet I think that Christ, in one sense, made him physically blind as a very profound statement to him to show him that he had been blind the entire time. Throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees, one of the, one of the, there's two things that Jesus really loved to call the Pharisees. Hypocrites and blind. We just read a portion of Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees and to the scribes. He says, you blind Pharisees. Actually, in this one rebuke, he calls them blind guides and blind fools and blind men five times. 
over and over again. And Paul was a Pharisee. Yet what's interesting is at the beginning of where our gospel reading um, is from with this rebuke, uh, Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. Because what's interesting is much of what they taught and did was not wrong. If you look at the different theological movements in the first century amongst the Jews, Jesus' theology actually aligns most closely with the Pharisees. They were the ones that defended the resurrection. They were the ones who emphasized the, the hope of awaiting for the coming Messiah. They studied the scriptures so that they could understand God's law which is good. So that they could encourage obedience and morality amongst God's people. To protect them from becoming worldly. To be Romanized. Because that's how Rome conquered the world, was not just putting people under submission, but putting people under submission and then eventually Romanizing them until eventually they just became Roman. He searched the scriptures for all of those things and was right probably on a lot of it. But he missed Jesus. He missed the greater central theme of God's promised grace for Israel. And not just for Israel, but also for those that Paul saw as the greatest threat and enemy. You see, he studied... God's word and knew God's word probably better than anybody alive today. But he did so with a different picture in mind of who God was and a different assumption about the central point of Scripture. And I say that because it's important to realize that one can be 98% right in their interpretation of different passages, in in their theology. But if you miss on Christ and his gospel, you missed it all. Can diligently study the word of God and have a lot of right interpretations. And it matters little if we have a wrong understanding of who God is and the ultimate purpose of God and guiding theme of those scriptures. Paul knew what God said, but he didn't know who he truly was. And so whenever he's confronted by Christ, he has to say those words, who are you, Lord? So if we talk of this as Paul's conversion, it was not a conversion of belief in the sense of, of converting to a different God, but it was a conversion in a radical change of his vision of that God. And with his devotion to Scripture, we see that that didn't actually change. He was extremely devoted to Scripture, studying it, memorizing it, being in it day in and day out. To have a word to proclaim to God's people, none of that changed after he was baptized and received the Holy Spirit. 
Actually, it says right after his baptism, he says that he went and spent three years in Arabia just to mull over this gospel, searching through the scriptures. And we see in all of his letters that we have that make up the majority of the New Testament that he is constantly fleshing out the word of God, proclaiming the word of God. Same study, same devotion to the scriptures, but now sees Christ and his gospel through it all. And it changed everything. Say in many ways, Paul's experience of Jesus on the road to Damascus gave him eyes to see the hermeneutic taught by Jesus on the road to Emmaus. That he poured through the scriptures, opened them up to, to, to them, and showed them how it was all about him. So the first point of the subtle change, it's important, is that, that, that we can be devout studying the scriptures, searching them. And it's a, it's a good thing, but we can do so for very, very different reasons. I mean, like Paul can be devoutly studying the scriptures to find, to, to, to pull out the law, to get good moral instruction, to find good ways that we can make sure to hedge ourselves and, and keep a separation from the ungodly and the worldly. I, mean, I know there's like an acronym, and, and not to speak ill, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that type of instruction, but I, 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 I do not like whenever there's a little thing I remember like hearing, teaching the kids, it's, it's like B-I-B-L-E, like basic instructions before leaving earth. No, it's not about basic instructions. There's plenty of instructions. You know, the Bible is about Jesus and his gospel. That's what it ultimately points to. But we can search the scriptures to find keys to get success in our best life now. So that we can find a level of of superiority to others. Improve our superiority. It can be just a a book that is, is used and scoured so that then we can show that we're smarter than others and prove others to be wrong. We we can search it so that we can become great scholars. Stand up in a small room in Franklin amongst like 35 people and feel significant about ourselves because we use big theological words and can expound the scriptures. There are a lot of different reasons why we can scour the scriptures, but Jesus says in John 5 9 or 539 to those who search the scriptures, He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life but it is they that bear witness about me. Paul's Bible devotion habits never changed. But man, did how he see the scriptures radically transform when he encountered Jesus. Similarly, you could say the same about how one views God can have really good theology and still have a wrong vision of God. Expound upon the attributes of God. I like um, A.W. Tozer. He has a statement that I quote often, but he says, the most important thing about a person is what comes to mind when they think of God. 
Paul had a certain idea of what he assumed the God of creation was about and was doing until he met Jesus. I can't remember who said this, but it's really witty. Um, So I'm going to plagiarize it. But uh, I remember hearing somebody say that in the beginning, God created man and woman in his image. And since then, we've been trying to return the favor. We can have a God that resembles whatever it is we assume him to be or want him to be. The end of our salvation is our being conformed and perfected into the likeness of Christ, that we will become like him. And one day that will be so by grace. But till then, we are not perfect. So be very, very leery of a God that is just like you. Who values all the same things you do, hates all the same people you hate, and looks just like you. One day we'll look like him, but right now he doesn't perfectly look like us. And so what Tozer says, I think is really, really profound. What do you think of what comes to mind when you think of God? The scriptures tell us that no one has known God, but Christ has made him known. Jesus, when asked to reveal the Father, he replied, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When you think of God, does Jesus come to That's the change that happened in Paul because we see in Paul's writing uh, that in his letters, when he thinks of God, he sees Jesus. And that's shaped how he understands his God. Real quick, we also see that he had this transformation of his dependence in which now he had become utterly dependent upon God. He was blinded said he had to be led by hand. I mean, how humiliating that is. But he couldn't do anything for himself. Everything that he had sought after and pursued was removed from him. He was a scholar of scriptures. They hadn't invented Braille yet. He couldn't even do the thing that he was best at doing. And if you read in the New Testament, you notice that in that culture in the time, the blind people are always beggars because they can do nothing for themselves. And initially, when he was knocked off the horse and encountered Jesus, all he heard was, you're persecuting me and go and wait. (laughs) There was no promise that he was going to heal him or give his sight back. I mean, in the mind of Paul, I could imagine what he's thinking is, this is permanent and he is coming in judgment. And so he finds himself, I just imagine, arrogant, proud, strong Paul now being guided, stumbling, put into a room, and then it says that he did not eat or drink for three days. 
And Jesus said to Ananias that you will find him praying. What you find is a broken, desperate man who has no hope anymore, but has enough to realize that his only hope is the grace of God now. And so he just fasts and prays because what else could he do? He had a life of reliance on his piety, his devotion, his study, his accomplishments, his notoriety. And now he's utterly dependent upon God, facing into possibly a life as a beggar, expecting judgment, but yet on his knees, praying day in and day out. I'm sure hoping upon hope for grace and mercy. And what's so interesting is that we see this experience then played out in Paul's theology throughout the New Testament. Paul was the great, brilliant orator to flesh out the gospel for us to realize that to be in Christ is to be one utterly dependent upon grace. One who can do nothing for themselves. And finally... So we had a changed vision of God and understanding the scripture. We had a subtle but significant change in his dependence. And we finally have a change in aspirations and motivation behind his zeal. Like I said, his zeal never changed. Paul was always a passionate dude. His devotion never changed. But his aspirations and motivations did. When he recounts his life and conversion to the church in Galatia in the beginning of Galatians, he talks about how he, in his devotion and his study and his education, that he was advancing as a leader of, of his people well beyond his age. Had zeal for the traditions of his fathers. Zeal for in many ways, some of the things that people regarded well during the culture of his time so it would have given him notoriety. He was moving up. I think in some ways maybe playing the crowd. And we have to be cautious even with that. Because we can be devoted to very good things, but for very bad reasons. I, I know, like, we talk a lot uh, today about how society despises Bible Christians. It does. Some segments, and some segments lift it up. There are plenty of segments in society where there is a ton to be gained by playing up devotion or traditional understanding or biblical piety or anything else. Not as much as before. It's not as broad. But man, you can still make a name for yourself. With a fervent vigor to piety and devotion. See, what's interesting is his zeal didn't change. But it was now for Christ and his gospel. He had zeal for the purity of his people and separation from these godless Gentiles. And now he has zeal for grace to be proclaimed to the Gentiles that they might be brought into God's people and that then God's people would be brought to holiness through grace. But more than that, it was the motivation behind 
an aspiration behind his zeal, his religious devotion, sacrificing so much. It was radically transformed because he had a transformed understanding of who God was in the central theme of scriptures. Because he came to this deep reality and realization of his utter and complete dependence on God's grace. That all came through this humbling encounter with the risen Christ. Listen to this. This is Paul recounting his previous life to the church in Philippi. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Some of these things are actually really, really good things that he's mentioning. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That same Lord that he first had to say, who are you? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the heart of conversion. Sometimes it entails religious or irreligious to religious. Sometimes not. But that's the heart. Not religious or irreligious, not moral or licentious, not devout or apathetic, not church leader or one leading attacks against the church. It's one and no matter what their aspirations were, whether pious or disgusting to society, comes to realize the unimaginable worth of the grace of Christ. That even the good things become rubbish compared to knowing him. And see, we often think of the need for evangelism to, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch. Those who are just so far off and so separated. Or evangelism going to the Samaritan. One who is apostate. 
corrupting with heresy. But the gospel's reach is so far and broad that it even reaches those who appear quite near. That his mission is a mission even to evangelize the devout, the moral, the religious. As we see, sometimes that's the hardest mission. Part of it is because we don't know. We don't know a person's heart. We don't know if they're truly Christian or not. Here's the good thing. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that that's our job to know. And it actually doesn't matter. Well, it matters for them, but it doesn't matter for us because we are to proclaim the gospel to all constantly and continually, praying for each other that we might encounter Christ, evangelizing each other, searching the scriptures together to see Christ and his gospel. See, that's the thing. Like, take Christopher here. Devout guy. He seems like a very moral, upstanding guy. Very devout. I'm pretty sure he's not saved. Um, I'm supposed to laugh there. Like, <laughs> oh, That's awkward. Um, no, like, I know his brother loves the Lord. I know he relies on Christ's gospel. And I know he needs me to continually evangelize him. Remind him of that gospel. Because ultimately what happened to Paul continually needs to happen to us. We need to continually encounter Christ. Sometimes when we encounter Christ, it's a hallelujah, and it's awesome. And sometimes when we encounter Christ, we are laying flat on our face. We need to be reminded that all of our devotion, our study, all these things, they're all about Jesus. They need to point us to Jesus. And we need to be searching to see Jesus in all of our pursuits. We all need to be reminded of our utter dependence upon his grace. Not fasting and praying so we can appear to be pious people, but fasting and praying because we realize, I desperately need you, Lord, and dependent upon him. So that by his grace and our encounter with him, we might be reminded and realize that every aspect of our life, religious, moral, the very good things in our life that are good, our family, our careers, our politics, our aspirations, that all of them pale to the ultimate goal, which is knowing Christ, becoming like Him, that we might partake in the resurrection, 
which means that one day I might stand before him, you and I together, and see him with our own eyes in our own flesh. May that be each of our individual hopes, but may that be the driving hope of this church right here, right now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the